At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Hello and welcome to the Defo Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine, but I was not here for today's episode. So you are left in the safe hands of Seb Stafford-Bloor, who spoke to Jonathan Harding, who wrote the book. Oh, hold on. Let me get it. He wrote the book Mensch. Which is a really, really good book. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast several times before. Alex really, really enjoyed it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm definitely going to now after listening to today's episode. Um, so it's really, really enjoyable. I just, um, I just listened through as I edited. I had a fantastic time. I hope that you do too. Um, but first, before we get started, let me tell you that we are supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. Do visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO to get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. We had Rafa Honigstein on from The Athletic a couple of weeks ago, so if you're a fan of German football and you enjoy this episode, you should go out um, and check out his work on there as well, because it is equally fantastic. Um, so thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, uh, welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. Joe's away, off doing exciting things in America, so you're stuck with me. Uh, and we're going to do something different. Um, people who have been listening for a long time will remember about a year ago we did a series of podcasts with authors. Um, and anybody who watches this on YouTube will recognize this book, um, which has been part of our, our background furniture for some time. And I'm delighted to welcome its author to the studio, Jonathan Harding. Hello, guten tag. Guten Tag. Very nice indeed. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> You're most welcome. Okay, so um, when I first met you, um, the book hadn't quite been published. It's true. And you talked about what you were going to do. Um, and it's, it's so different. Um, for anybody that sort of... I tell you what, why don't you start by giving us your introduction to the book. For people who haven't read it or haven't come across it, um, you know, we, we, we've got listeners from a few different countries who might not have had access to it. So... What would, what would be your pitch for what it is? Well, in 500 words, please describe. All few, <laughs> You've got yeah. all the time you need. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, I think the book is about people. I mean, that's what the title is. It's the German word for, for person or for people, if you, if you add on the plural. Um, I think that's the, really the key. That's what I wanted to do. I, I read a lot of literature around football and sport generally that didn't really focus on humans. It was very tactical or technical or yeah. historically specific. And I felt there was just a need to tell stories. At the end of the day, as a species, we have survived and existed on telling stories since I, you know, since I can remember and since anybody can remember. So why have we not continued that? Storytelling is the great art of mm. the human species, if you like. And I just, I wanted to speak to people who had something to say. I was very fortunate that each chapter is a story from a coach in Germany through their experiences. And each chapter has an attribute of coaching that I think is necessary or applicable to the person I interview. So it's sort of like a, an adventure along the road of what you might need to coach, the kind of things you need to consider, and ultimately, through the eyes of these individuals, the, the experiences you might have. I think when you... Uh, you're, you're a San Francisco 49ers fan, aren't you? I am, yes. You know this book reminded me of? When I first started reading it, it was, it's Bill Walsh's um, Finding the, the Winning Edge. Like I've never been able to find a copy to own, but um, some family friends used to have an old, old sort of dog-eared copy. Um, am I aware in that situation? Is always that have you have you read it? I mean, you're aware of I've read that and the genius by, okay. about him, and so you, you kind of like with with that for people who don't know, um, Walsh kind of wanted to, I suppose you, you'd call it a legacy project. He wanted to, to include everything that you would um, need to be a successful head coach in the NFL, um, and the worry with that is that kind of you're always going to produce information which is very dense so when i when i when, when i heard about what you're writing about that was my initial fear but then when i read it i just thought god it's interesting i i i think um, I've, I've almost finished writing reading it for the second time and so much i've learned 
Um, and I want to know really what the kind of like beyond the, the, the telling stories, I, there's a lot of football books now, which are, which do tell stories, but which pivot around people, which pivot around things, which are easier to make readable. You've done a tremendous job with it. I mean, because there's so much detail and you've managed to bind it all together in a way that's really entertaining. But what was sort of, it's, it's a hell of a project to take on. Well, I didn't feel like I was able to explore the creativity in the work that I was doing at the time. So I thought, well, if I can't be creative here, then I'm just going to go and do it myself. And yeah. I sort of took it upon myself to write something at the beginning about coaching in Germany, because the original idea was that this is this country is considered a blueprint of football and yet nobody's really writing about it yeah. and i read living on the volcano by michael calvin which i thought was very interesting and had a huge impact on me because it talks about people and coaching in england actually to be honest there's a lot of calvin in your work in in a, in a, in a complimentary sense like i i huge admiration of mike's work of course but like it, it was a little bit like reading the next book in the michael calvin series to me yeah, that's very humbling no, no absolutely it was um, uh, and I think writing, just having the opportunity to tell the, the stories from, from other perspectives was a big thing. But yeah, I think I had that determination to explore the creativity that I had inside me. If I wasn't going to get it somewhere else and I wasn't going to let that stop me getting the story out there and producing it. I mean, it's a long time coming. I mean, I remember starting with something like two years, two and a half years worth of work and you go through countless edits and countless questions and how many times and putting things together and, and getting access and speaking to people. Obviously, you you know, part of me would have liked to speak to people like Julian Nagelsmann or Florian Kohlfeldt, you know, these up and coming yeah. young coaches. But in a way, speaking to the people I did, I think spoke more to the, the theme of the book, which was it's not always about the most obvious people in the situation that have the greatest impact. And some of the people that are working behind the scenes have a far greater impact. So often in football narratives, we hear it's the head coach's fault, it's the chairman's fault, it's the yeah. striker's fault. Well, there's also a, a large group of staff that are working there that can influence the, the result on a Saturday. And also how every training session goes and how the, the mood and the feeling of an individual or a group goes. So there's a lot more at play. And I, I think I just wanted to give those people the chance to, to speak about their, their importance in, in the role, but also their influence on proceedings. Okay, so, I mean, let's go back right back to the beginning of the project and your hunt for access, mm. your um, pursuit of the people that you needed to make the project work. Um, by day, you're a Bundesliga journalist. Mm. You've worked, you've lived in Germany for how long? Uh, I've been there for seven years, but my personal story with the country and German-speaking countries is much longer and greater. Yeah. Okay. So what was that like? Because um, people who are listening from England uh, will know, even if they're not journalists, will know full well that um, you ask a Premier League football club to do anything and they just slam the door in your face. They're not really interested in in doing anything which is not on their terms, which isn't selling a project, a product that they want to vend. You know, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not there to fulfill a marketing purpose, they're not really interested. So what was that like? Because um, your cast of characters, um, you, you, I understand the desire to speak to a Nagelsmann or someone like that, but your cast of characters is really quite impressive. What was that like to, to put together? I think I got very lucky. Um, I wasn't getting anywhere with the big clubs. Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund were very difficult. Yeah, I'll be happy to say that uh, because they were. And uh, I think in some senses it's a shame that in recent years uh, Borussia Dortmund have made themselves more difficult to access for certain people. I, On the flip side though, I will say that I understand that as a football club that's on the rise, dealing with a vast increase in requests yeah. is difficult. And if you're not used to it or you're trying to adjust, that can also be, um, yeah, difficult to, la to navigate. Other teams in the Bundesliga were far more accommodating. Um, smaller teams, and I say smaller purely in a perspective sense, I don't think they're The internet is very forgiving of that kind of thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but clubs that are, I would say, less prestigious outside of the community for which they're in or the, yeah. the communities for which they serve, um, they were far more accommodating. I think that's partly because football clubs in Germany still retain a community connection and there's an understanding of the image that they put out in the world is affected by their actions to the people involved in putting that image out there. So there seemed to be a greater sense of understanding at slightly smaller clubs. But one or two people in the process that I had when I was interviewing changed it for me and they were so accommodating and so friendly and sort of enabled me to meet other people. 
And I think if you establish trust with people, then they consider you to be uh, not adequate or appropriate, but then they're happy to pass you on to someone else on the basis of the fact that they have considered you to be you know, trustworthy in that situation. Your motives have presumably become clear when you, when you sit down and talk to someone and you ask the kind of questions that you presumably did to put the book together. Mm. That must become clear to them fairly quickly. I think they realised that I wasn't working for Built or <laughs> yeah. The Sun. Um, you know, I, I'm there to do something else. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not, ask, I'm not asking questions to, to create stories out of nothing. I'm not writing headlines that have nothing to do with articles that precede them. I'm there to ask questions about people and I, I'm not trying to force you into a corner. I literally just want to listen most of the time. And I think with all the, almost all the interviews I had, I went in with maybe five or six questions on a piece of paper. And I was lucky if I got to five or six because we probably do the first two and then we'd end up talking about so many other things. Yeah. And that's the way that I felt it should be. It was a very natural conversation. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have come out with the, um, with the end product. Let's, let's start with one of those. What we're going to do is we're not going to um, tread on the book's toes too much. We want people to, we want people to go out and buy it rather than, <laughs> rather than just get you to read it into the, uh, into the <laughs> microphone. Um, but let's talk about a couple of the bits from it. I think um, a natural starting point is um, your chat with uh, Frank Vormuth. Vormuth? Vormuth. Okay. My, my fiance is actually grew up in Germany, so like... Yeah, I can see a sneering at my pronunciation. <laughs> okay, uh, and uh, he's now at Heracles, isn't he? he but is. he was uh, the head of the uh, German Coaching Academy in Hennef. Correct. Um, talk us through what the Coaching Academy's function actually is in, I suppose, German football society or German football's ecosystem. It was a fantastic experience. Frank was so accommodating. He was so friendly. And I think... I. I could have allude to this in the book that he was someone when I sat down with him I felt like I was sitting down with someone that I had known for 10 years and he yeah. was he was very friendly in that sense and that's very rare in football but I you know was very fortunate to be in that situation with him and he felt very open he was he was candid in some respects mm-hmm. um, he told me about the areas that he wanted to improve the coaching course we specifically spoke about the Fußballlehrer which is right at the top and that's so- the equivalent of so for people who don't five. know, like um, that qualification, so describe the process that a, a, a head coach or a, um, a prospective head coach goes through with a football lira. Well, I mean, it's extremely complicated. Yeah. And the well, details a, of a which, condensed version of it. The, yeah. the slimmer version is that, I, you know, you spend, I want to say something like nine months, I think, or maybe a little bit longer than that in, in Hennef working yeah. with, with Frank and the team. I think there's 24 guys that end up being all girls, women on the, on the course at the yeah. end. Uh, there's a big process of application. I think it's 90 people sometimes that can apply for that final um, position. And they have to then decide the 24 that they want to take into the course. What are the kind of things that they're looking for? So yeah, they, uh, if I'm a head coach yeah. and I'm, I, I, I want to enroll in this course, I want to be selected. Yeah. I, I, we'll, we'll talk about why you might want to be in a minute, but what are, what are they looking for in me? Well, when they make the application, when they review the applications, they try to consider taking applicants from a broad spectrum so that you're not just taking ex-pros, for example, that you're also taking people. And I did ask him about that because, you know, I do have major gripes about the UK and the way that that happens. That's a different podcast. That's a different podcast. Immediately after this. We can get onto that later. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's a different issue. But what they've tried to do is to accommodate the ex-pro bias that existed in the past, even in Germany. What they've done, I think, is have a great system Basically, it's a point system where, for example, if you're an ex-pro, but you never really coached, then you got a certain amount of points. But if you were a semi-pro and you coached in the third division, you probably end up with the same number of points. Yeah. Right. So, and that makes sense to me because, or similar points, because what you're doing is you're rewarding the coaching side of things, which in my eyes, and I'm sure many others, is a completely different job to playing. Um, and not just saying, well, you used to play in the second division, so you'll probably be a good coach. Because the danger with that is, of course, you just recycle what you were coached, yeah. and that's not effective. So that process is uh, in, that is important when you're looking at the applications, because you have to consider who's coming from where, how do I pick people so that we get a broad spectrum of coaches, because you want a broad spectrum of coaches. Yeah. Um, Secondly, one thing that Frank said is a lot of the applications fail on the basis of paperwork. Some of the paperwork is right, some things are missing. So a lot of people might be keen. You're saying, what are people looking for me? Well, you're making sure that you've got everything in order first. Yeah. So some people don't have that. 
And that's that's tricky. That's um, probably a hurdle that a, that a couple of ex pros clatter into. Potentially. I mean, yeah. there's also an argument to be made, a lighthearted one, that Germany has a history of making life difficult for people when it comes to paperwork. I mean, <laughs> I can speak about that personally as someone who's lived there for a, a long time, but it is true. Um, maybe that's another podcast for another day. But You got your visa sorted for fly back, right? Um, I hope so. Maybe they won't let me in now. We'll find out. If you find out about me in the so news. We'll, we'll release this after you're back through the border. Yeah, there you okay, go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm safely back in Germany yeah, yeah, now, yeah. I hope. So that's something else. But I think when you look at the applications generally, um, I think the hard thing is that you just don't want uh, you, you have to make sure that you're not applying too much bias, especially if you know the people that are involved in the course. And from the way that Frank explained it to me and how what they're looking for in coaches, they're looking for a decent level of experience because youth football in Germany is extremely respected. Yeah. It's not like over here uh, where I think youth football is still sneered at. I think in Germany, the work that you do at youth level, the only difference between youth level and top level is pressure, money, and quality of individual players. I think one of the gripes in this country, certainly with under-23 football, is that it exists in a vacuum. And so if you coach in the under-23 system, so Premier League 2, for instance, um, it's almost a valueless bit of experience because it's a, it's a fancy world. It's a, it, and that, that's a problem with the system. I don't think it's a problem with the players, it's a problem with the coaches, or the problem with the clubs. It's a problem with um, creating an environment which actually is conducive to replicating the conditions that players will experience as they get older. So it's become, it's like a, it's a one big false economy, essentially. And, and the, the disadvantage of, of that is that you don't allow for a pathway <coughs> for coaching development, right? Yeah. And ultimately in Germany, that's the advantage. I mean, that's why Daniel Farker is doing so well at Norwich, in my opinion, or Daniel Stendel at Barnsley. You know, these coaches have had the opportunity to coach at youth level. That work has been respected because it's of a high level and therefore they're able to go and get opportunities elsewhere. So when you look at the coaching course as a whole, what are they looking for? I mean, they're looking for almost everything. It's not possible to find that. But Frank said, you know, I'm not looking to create a personality out of nothing. I can't force something out of you that isn't there. But I am looking for something beyond just the technical or the tactical. Because ultimately, those are the things that can be learned. You know, it's, it's a bit like a player. If you are deficient in some areas that can be coached, but areas, you know, personal areas that can also be coached, yeah. obviously. But, you know, you're looking for people with those kind of strong characteristics. And if that's there, then that can play in your favour as well. So it is a brutal process, but I think they get the best candidates every year. I, um, I, I was having trouble sleeping last night. So I was up late <laughs> watching um, the Bundesliga highlights on BT. And uh, they're showing the, um, uh, the, the, the highlights from... It was uh, RB Leipzig against Werder Bremen over the weekend and Leipzig won 3-0. Yeah. Um, and I was listening to um, the Leipzig coach, uh, Florian Kaffelt. You mean the, oh, Bremen, the coach. Bremen coach? Sorry, Nagelsmann. Yeah. But I was listening to him speak and I, I'd been, prior to coming here today to, to talk to you, I'd been rereading your book and I was, obviously the chapter which um, Frank is a part of deals a lot with communication, mm. the things that you've talked about and the mm. kind of, you know, say so you can't teach a personality. But I, I was listening to him speak after Bremen's defeat and they lost 3-0 and they, you know, they were well beaten. And he was, even in second language, he was so engaging. Not just articulate, but he was engaging and kind of, it's interesting because it's a sort of, I can't, as someone raised on British football, I can't help but compare to what the alternative might be in this country and the way that people speak about um, winning and losing. So simple mm. things. So mm. default in this country is... Um, a list of complaints, a list of reasons why we couldn't win. Um, and he was just, he was analytical, but forthright. Um, but there was a, a magnetic quality to the way he spoke about the game. It was very, very interesting. Um, obviously, like the poster child for um, this kind of movement at the moment is Nagelsmann. Mm. Um, what is it that, the book covers this really well, but what is it that makes him special? Because Another topic you cover is it's all very well creating this coaching pathway. It's, it's fine to say, right, well, we've got a youth system which actually um, has relevance to senior football. Mm. But then when that coach is promoted up, how do you make him accepted and how do you give him the gravitas to succeed when he gets to the Bundesliga, for instance? Well, that's an enormous question. Of course it is, yeah. Um, but how do you answer that? Well... I think Nagelsmann's a pretty unique case. That's part of the issue with, with it. You can't necessarily take him and say he's the blueprint and therefore other people should follow him. Um, Klopp, for example, 
lots of people feel like he is an example that should be followed because of his success. But his charisma is very unique to him. And in many ways, some Germans would say, not that German. Yeah. So you've got to be wary, and this isn't even about nationalities, this is just about people being different people. And what may work for one person doesn't work for another. I think it's very interesting they pointed out Florian Colfort's ability to communicate. One thing that Frank said on the course that they did was that they, the moment that they would arrive before they've even had a chance to gather themselves, they would film them and they would ask them to speak publicly in front of the group. Yeah. And then they would do the same at the end of the course and they would show them the difference between their ability to speak publicly at the beginning and at the end. That was the mirroring, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, and that was really interesting. If you do that and you show someone the development that they've made, then they're also completely aware of their body language their yeah. eye contact, how they speak, the words that you choose to say, because all of those things make a difference. You know, when you communicate with someone, the way that you choose to do so has a massive impact on the way that that message is received. Yeah. If he did it in a different way, maybe you wouldn't have watched it and said, God, that guy's really engaging. You might have said, oh, another football manager making excuses for his side losing the game. So it makes a massive impact. And another thing they do on the course that I thought was very telling about communication was that they would have they would prepare coaches for situations. So a bit like players, when you have specific drills that prepare them for in-game situations, they would have coaches prepared for, let's practice this speech for the first time in the changing room of the team. Let's practice your interview with the chairman of the club. That you're applying for a job for. So I found that fascinating. I wanted, wanted, wanted that, that theme in your book about job preparation, uh, the idea that they would, they would dummy out, um, okay, a, a, a Bundesliga club, for, in, for instance, in peril. So they'd outline the situation for someone on the coaching course and say, right, you've got, um, I think it was like a, a couple of, like a month to prepare for the interview. And that candidate would watch back through all the footage and try and not only worry about their presentation skills in the interview itself, but the kind of their suitability for the job. Yeah, that no, was absolutely fascinating. And you have to know, and I think one of the things that's so interesting, you have to know as a candidate what the values of the club yeah. are. Because when you go into that interview, it's not just about, okay, it's not just a situational application that you're making in that interview. You're 10 games to go, we need 10 points to survive. Okay, I know the technical, tactical approach to this, but I know the values of this club. I know the community that this club serves. I know the best players. I know the best way to get the best out of them to bring the group together. These are all considerations that are made in that process. And it was, as you say, fascinating to think that before those interviews actually happen in real life, they're happening in practice yeah. and managers are preparing for those situations. And again, preparation is the ability to handle pressure, yeah. right? So if you, even if an, an interview situation might not be the, the ultimate moment of pressure for coaches, but... It's not easy. I think one of the statistics is something like there's 250 or 350 Fußballlehrer in Germany. And there's only those many jobs, whatever it is, 52 or 56 in the top three divisions, right? So how do you, not everybody's going to get a piece of the pie. Right. So you have to be able to bring something else to the table when you step up. And if you've prepared for that, you have to make sure that you set yourself apart. And it's just one of the things that they do on the course to give the candidates the best chance when they go out into the real world. Like Frank said, you can't make people something that they're not, but you can give them the tools to give them the best chance to be the best version of themselves. Or to look at what they are and develop the skills that they see or the inefficiencies they see. Um, let's talk about Mehmet Scholl. So sure. <laughs> most of the uh, European football watching community um, adored Julian Nagelsmann. I think it's a, a great story. Uh, he's quite a captivating personality as well if you watch him on the touchline or an interview. Mm. It's the same principles I described earlier. He is an engaging person, even in a second language, which is really quite impressive. Uh, Mehmet Scholl, not as such a fan of the coaching academy. Why not? Mehmet Scholl's biggest criticism is that he thinks that the focus at the moment creates a group of players or actually first coaches that can coach players who can, quote, fart 17 different tactical systems, I think, yeah. um, but not with the individual skills to win games. I think on the, you know, the classic football cliche speak would be, he has that something special, Clive. Um, oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, trademark. Trademark, yeah. yeah. So how do you coach that? That was the criticism that was not so delicately put by, by Scholl. And um, obviously the, the feedback from most coaches who had done the course or even from Frank, it was just, well, this is a guy who hasn't been on the course or who feels in, slightly embittered that he's not had the opportunity or he doesn't feel... 
When was, um, remind me, when was Mehmet Scholl's last um, managerial job, last coaching oh, job, 2011? A, a long time ago, he was working in the Bayern Academy and uh, okay. yeah, he hasn't had anything since. I mean, he had, doing media work instantly distances you, I think, in some respects from the coaching community. Obviously coaches have to do something to survive. It's a very difficult time. And I do talk about that in one of the chapters in the book, when you don't have a job, um, you have to do a lot of self-work and you have to do a lot of, you know, hospitizing with other clubs and meeting other coaches and, and keep going. But at the end of the day, if you aren't working, then, you know, there's no harm and I have no problem with coaches working in the media in that sense. But the challenge is, is great for coaches there. I mean, I can't really emphasize that enough. I mean, how do you, how do you go about coaching the right way for the right era or the right group of players. And one of the things that's interesting at the moment in Germany, and I think maybe we're moving away from it because the rate of change in the world today is so fast or so great. Talk about generation Y. This is this generation of players who always ask why they're doing drills or why we're doing this session rather than just doing it. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, most players, Huna Maya talks about it. We just did it. We just turned up. We did what the coaches said and there was no questioning. Now there's a lot more questioning because I think there's an intelligence of players now or there's an in inquisitive nature of players that there maybe wasn't in the past. And as a coach, you have to be able to handle that. You have to be able to deal with that situation and you also have to coach differently. So what Scholl is alluding to is that maybe German coaches, based on the way that they've been educated in, in this on the course, is that they're only really able to teach them how to change from a 4-3-3 to a 3-4-3 in a game, how to deal with pressing. And okay, they'll have great technical skills anyway, because based on the academy system revolution at the beginning of the millennium, Germany's been producing talented players for a while. Yeah. Fine. But what's missing is your Leroy Sane's, right? So that's a big conversation. And Germany has addressed that this year. But when you when you talk about, I personally, from everything that Frank said, I don't think that's really the case on the course. But I think that there are changes, that, as I say, that have been made since that were necessary to broaden the development of players um, in a way that allows them to be more individualistic. Okay, so that's quite a nice little segue to Jaden Sancho. Because obviously here you have a player that learned the game um, in cages, in sort of freestyle, mm. not freestyle form of the game, but an uninhibited version an of the game. A raw version of the game. Definitely a raw version of the game. Um, one that sort of encourages more expression. Mm. So I'd say that the, the, what, what Shaw's really getting at then is kind of a lack of problem solving ability. That the, the, the academy produces coaches who can preach circuit based football when the circuit breaks down don't really know what to do as an individual player on the pitch. You're a little bit lost. Exactly that. Um, but you kind of, it's almost as if like he's, he's making a criticism of a different department of the game. It's kind of though the qualities that someone like a, a Sancho has, which is in my mind anyway, um, instinctive knowledge about when to release the ball, how to use the ball. Like he has all the kind of the technical ability too, but I'd say his mental attributes are, you know, are, are his selling point. It's kind of like, well, you know, those are things which are built into a player when he's a teenager, really. Maybe. I don't know if that's right or not. But that's why the Bundesliga or clubs in the Bundesliga are buying more players like right. Jaden Sancho because Jaden Sancho offers them something that they cannot get through their own academies or in Germany. And that's one of the reasons, I think, also that his signing has had a knock-on effect for a lot of young English talents who have recognised... Sure. Like roadmap now. Absolutely. I can go over there and get game time because yeah. for me, the most beautiful part of the Bundesliga is that players get opportunities there yeah. in a way that they wouldn't here or in other leagues. Um, and I, I like, I like that Sancho has opened that door. That's not to say that it hasn't existed before. I think there's a personality thing. I think, I think people I know who have met and spoken to Sancho talk about a fairly outgoing person, someone mm. that has a lot of self-belief and England is an insular place doesn't necessarily encourage those attributes at least not in a way which survive a plane trip for instance or you know they won't learn the language they're not really sure about how to deal with 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 um with with different cultures it's kind of a societal failing but it's it's a it's certainly you needed someone like that who's brave enough to say i'm gonna go and do this and then you have the uh, the keenan bennett's the reese nelson's the john joe kenny's those kind of players that will say actually this is something that I'm willing to do, I guess. And the knock-on effects of that are endless because it's not just about the footballing development that, and that happens during that process, but as a human being, I think you grow immensely. Definitely. And uh, there's a lot to be said for that. But 
from a coaching issue, I think what's interesting is that Germany has recognized that and it's had a knock-on effect in the national team. And we'll get onto that, I'm sure. But yes. what I, again, I don't necessarily see it as a failing of the coaches because Leroy Sané is a product of the, that system and he came through there. I mean, Meza Ozil is a product of that system. So I don't see it. I, I think what Scholl is saying has its truths, but I don't think it's 100% true because the coaches in that system have the ability to coach. Sometimes it's the players. This is never This podcast is, of course, supported by The Athletic. I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's good, isn't it? I know I'm not on it, but it is good. Uh, but this episode is still, even though I'm not here, surprising as that may be, they still thought that they should sponsor it, The Athletic. Do go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Get a 30-day free trial, 50% off an annual subscription, and probably the best football writing available on the internet. I say probably because I don't want anyone to contradict me, but I think it is. I've been reading it a lot. It's really worthwhile. Um, and as it relates to today's episode, I mentioned at the beginning of the, the podcast that we had Rafa Honigstein on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he's been writing for The Athletic for a few weeks now, um, specifically about German football, and they had a really great piece I was reading earlier this morning um, about Ivan Perisic on the dawn of his arrival at Bayern Munich um, and, you know, little bits as it relates to him knowing that he wasn't really Munich's first choice and how Kovic reflected on that also, um, but how he might be able to help and how he fits in a little bit about his history as well. It's, it's really, really worth reading. It's sort of akin to a TIFO player profile, that one, with a little bit more detail. Uh, because you don't have to squeeze it all into a video. So do do please go and read that. You can support this podcast by supporting The Athletic, our wonderful friends. Um, so go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO and uh, it's a 30-day free trial and 50% off your annual subscription. Thank you and I release you back into the warm embrace of Seb Staffer-Bloor and Jonathan Harding, author of the book Mensch. Do buy the book it's really good from the sounds of it. I'm going to read it. But Alex says it's brilliant and Seb clearly says it's brilliant. I mean, even Jonathan says it's good and he wrote it. So there's a surprise. Right. Uh, thank you. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, let, let, let's talk about the national team. Mm. And let's talk about 2018. With um, pleasure. <laughs> you have been promising to, to go hard at the FD <laughs> since we started. Okay, so um, one of the chaps in your book uh, takes place at an ITK, which in German is? The Internationale Trainer Congress, which is the International Coaching Conference. Okay, so it's kind of like, a, I think it's over three days, and it's, I, I suppose, the best way to describe it is like a, a symposium meeting for all kinds of different coaching minds. And the, um, the, the emphasis is on interaction and sharing ideas and speakers. Um, and you went to one of them, after 2018, mm. um, I think you heard Matthias Sammer speak. Um, and there was some fairly interesting things about, um, not that he was speaking about Yogi Love specifically at the time, no. but he made some remarks which, after the World Cup in Russia, became quite relevant about um, one of the deficiencies of that coaching system, of you know the, the, the hierarchy, for instance, in, in the DFB. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> you, can have, you, can have a, you can have a quick... Glass of water before you yeah. do. You might be talking for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just get myself ready. The major problem with the DFB is that they won the World Cup. Yeah. And they didn't recognise... Let's just go through the structure of the DFB at the so moment. So you've got... You've got a well, president. You've got a president who was Reinhard Grindel, who will be... Um, I can't remember the guy's name, from Freiburg. Yeah. And... That's also questionable because you've then got a head coach from Freiburg and a president from Freiburg and it's the Freiburg club and that's Nepotism got it. Yeah, that's got a potential issue. Yeah. But during this time, you had Grindel and Grindel was a politician and is not a football guy, was appointed to sort of fill that politician hole, as it were, because they felt they needed someone diplomatic in that situation. Turns out, not a great appointment. What a surprise. Um, um, for those who don't remember, he he made the um, the multiculturalism is a, an illusion comments back in I think two thousand and four. The ones that came up in Meza Özil's resignation yes. statement, mm. and he's right at the top. And then, really, I think Love is below him. I mean, there are other figures in there, and I don't 
want to say that there aren't advisors or you know, chairman to the board or whatever it is, but really love winning the World Cup and coming on the way that he did after Klinsman. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with assistants coming on. I think that was fine. You know, ultimately had the experience having spent time it's in the been validated after, uh, yeah. yeah, and winning the World Cup was was great for the journey. But the problem was, at least in my eyes, is that the DFB didn't recognise that that was the end of the journey. 2003 winning them won the World Cup. Clive Woodward, that was the end of the journey. It was Wilkinson recognised it. Johnson recognised Everybody realised that that was the moment that this mm-hmm. progression had gone. I think Woodward recognised it. Woodward, he, if I if memory serves me right, he was the one encouraging change and, and, and imploring people not to look at 2003 as a kind of a validation of, of, of what is happening there and then. It was a kind of, well, this is the legacy of five, six, seven years of work and we are, we are still behind as a result of that. We need to be forward-facing. And that's the irony of all of this, that Germany continued to think that they were forward-facing after yeah. winning the World Cup in Brazil. And everything they did that followed on from that was arrogant, in my belief. It was a mistake. They didn't make the right choices. They said all of the wrong things and didn't back it up with action. If you decide to stay on as the head coach, and I think it was okay and acceptable to give him the Euros after that because ultimately he won the World Cup. You can say, you know what, if you want to stay on for the Euros, fine. That was the latest point of departure for him, in my opinion, that he should have gone. I thought he should have gone after Rio because it can't get any better than that. Philip Lahm, recognized it he knew that was the end of the journey obviously it's different for different players at different ages but i think if you're going to take a team on a transformational journey i hate that phrase but it's a cycle yeah yeah the end of the cycle was there you the euros okay they played reasonably well in that tournament the semi-final against france fine okay that was that was a cutting off point giving love a new contract before russia was a terrible idea because well because it perpetuates the idea that he's beyond the law basically okay. and before the next world cup you're saying this is our guy for the next four years well hold on he was the guy for brazil yeah. he probably shouldn't have been the guy for france now he's definitely the guy for russia europe and qatar potentially like what are we what are we going to do with that so my problem is the DFB didn't recognise that. Part of the reason they didn't recognise that is what you were saying at the beginning of what Matthias Sammer said, is that it was a flat hierarchy because they created an environment for Love where he had so much power, at least this is just how I perceive it to be, that no one was challenging him. Because who's going to challenge a World Cup winning head coach? It's not going to be your president, no. who has no idea about football and, quite frankly, didn't do a good job of the side of the job he was there to do. Presumably not Oliver Bierhoff either. Oliver Bierhoff. What is, what is Bierhoff's job description? Like, I know what his job title is, but what is his actual... Jo- Oliver Bierhoff, his baby at the moment is the is the move to the bigger coaching academy in Frankfurt, yeah. which is being built. And he's talked it up as the Silicon Valley of coaching, right? So he's more of a macro yeah, employee. He, 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 a- he, he's the reason that the DFB and the, you know, D-Mannschaft exists. Okay. He's the brand manager, so far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean, okay. he probably doesn't have that job title and he would never admit to it. But so far as I'm concerned, Bierhoff is a classic case of great player. Yep. Hasn't necessarily been able to, to build on the success they had in 2014. Maybe it was the end of his journey as well. Maybe Germany should have recognized that change and moved on. You know, it's really interesting. I was, uh, I was reading Per Mertzsacker's autobiography not so long ago. And the terms with which Mertesacker, and by all accounts, his teammates at the time, talk about people like Bierhoff and Love Klinsmann too, because they have a natural loyalty yes. to Klinsmann given their age. It's very interesting that kind of once that generation retires, or at least retires from international football, I think almost, you know, Mertesacker's obviously retired now and, and, uh, and, and Philip Lahm, there's the kind of that loyalty with the coach and with someone like Bierhoff kind of goes with them because the new generation are someone like a Leroy Sane for instance it's not it's not the same it can't be the same because they don't they weren't there at that sort of at that point where German football ticked over sort of with the sort of the the, the post Euro 2000 reformations and all that kind of thing that that sort of movement is very interesting because you'd think logically you make a point in your book about how it's not really related but you make a point about how you shouldn't really separate head coaches from directors of football because they should be a team. Um, and it's weird that they kind of move around independently of each other. Well, why is it that if Love was ever to leave, that Bierhoff wouldn't as well? Exactly that. That that would be my... I don't understand yeah. that. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting about different generations responding differently. Love, I think, has a, has a problem 
coaching a modern a modern generation footballer. Why is that? Because I think he struggles to connect to a 22-year-old uh, okay. in a way that I think he didn't have the same problem when it was 2010 or 2012. Uh, I think it was a different time and Germany going through a different cycle and he was younger and those players were not impacted by the things that young players today are. Like social things, do you mean? Yeah, social forces... Uh, different expectations, power change, um, social media. I don't want to sound like social media because I think there's a lot of good to be found there, but I think it can be an overwhelming force. And I think it's harder to coach now than it ever has been. And I think if you're the smart coach, and again, I say this very humbly, then I think you recognize when the time has come that you feel that the distance is too great between your players. And if Love had recognized that, then my biggest question that would follow up that is why didn't he get more people around him to support him in that, in that situation? Because ultimately, and that's one of the things about the, con uh, the conference that I recognized, the best results come from exchange. And if the head coach of the German national team feels that he's surrounded by a lot of people who can input ideas that will help him become a better coach and access younger players in a way that he wasn't able to, or he's afraid or he's not sure, Why wasn't he given more support? I'm sure the DFB would say he was given plenty of support, but that wasn't reflected in the way they played football. They approached Russia by playing the same football that they yeah. played in the previous uh, previous tournament. He, they were terrible uh, across the board. I was fortunate enough, you know, with my work with DW to follow them around. They were arrogant. The training was, you know, we're going to rock up and we're going to win these games. I think one or two players, as well as Love, said that they thought they would just be able to turn up and win even after that sloppy win against Saudi Arabia and Leverkusen just before the tournament yeah. started. That is a desperately poor mentality for a side to enter a World Cup in. You will never win anything. It reminds me of England. That's about as damning a thing as I can possibly say about German football is that it reminds me of Sven Goran Eriksson era England, that and, German And World you know Cup what's tournament. funny? England in Russia reminded me of Germany back in the day. And it was so funny because suddenly England had a different approach. They had a different culture cultivated by Gareth Southgate, but it they had was, a confidence to themselves. I, I tell you what, that, that it, it's almost perfect symmetry. They reminded me of 2006 Germany. Yeah. You think you're not quite good enough to win the tournament and you will be found out at some point, but there's all this sort of uh, latent Hype. enthusiasm within the players yeah. and it's just, it's new and it's fresh and it's different and it's better. Yeah. Um, and Germany, Germany looks so stale. They did. Day. And that, that comes from the culture created by giving a head coach a new contract before a tournament putting yourself into a corner. I don't believe, and I would love the DFB to prove me otherwise, yeah. I don't believe that they had put any plans into place for Love's successor post-Rio. And well, why didn't they do that? Why didn't they have someone in place, especially after 2016? Why didn't they even have any names? Why wasn't there someone there? Because that doesn't need to be public information, I guess. But I think if you're not going to prepare for what comes after the end of a cycle, yeah. then you're doomed from the start. Let's just jump back quickly. You talked about kind of the support network around mm. him. Now, what kind of tone does that support network have? Is it you, you advocating for a situation where you have people with um, the footballing authority to challenge him? To That's challenge exactly him? it. Yeah, right. That's exactly it. One of the big things they said about 2014 was the team behind the team. Unfortunately, yeah. that was sold as, you know, look at how great we are. <laughs> yeah. Again, the best part of coaching is not to sell the things you're doing. It's just to do them. Yeah. Not because someone's looking, but because you know it's the right thing to do. Um, Hansi Flick was a huge loss for the Germany team. He's now assistant coach Nico Kovac at Bayern Munich, which is probably their best signing. For people that, that, um, that don't know, what was his relation to, to Yogi Love? Well, he was the assistant manager yeah. in 2014 for Love, and he was they, they were they worked well together. But that is a guy who has the footballing brain to challenge Love and say, you know what, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Now, Thomas Schneider who ended up being not convinced he was necessarily on the same level. Marcus Sorg, who was one of the members of staff who's now the assistant coach, I'm not convinced he's on the same level. Uh, that's not to, you know, disrespect their knowledge, but Love has been around for so long and he is also someone who's relatively stuck in his ways. So you also need someone that knows him, but is willing to challenge him and not so close to him that you're broken down by your friendship and you're like, oh, I don't want to say this to you because, you know, you need someone open enough. Oh, yeah, you know what? We, we talked about the NFL earlier. Um, people who've seen the um, Do Your Job documentary on the New England Patriots, one of the fascinating dynamics there is whatever you think of the man, how well Bill Belichick 
receives criticism and he invites people to say that's a bad idea or um i think there's one in, in example where they've been doing a certain drill in practice during training camp be like look let's do something different this is like, look at the players they're bored they want they, they want to change the pace it's that kind of stuff presumably right yeah you you need, you need someone to recognize when something is routine yeah and to change it up and say look we need to be this needs to be hard work not just going through motions and Germany have been missing that for a while. I think they, you know, they're obviously starting a new cycle now. Löw is obviously trying. Look at the way they played football against the Dutch recently. It's a confused football, so far as I'm concerned. He can't let go of the past, but he's accepting that he needs to play more transitional football at the same time. He doesn't know what to do. He can't get the best out of Timo Werner. He doesn't know what to do with Kai Havertz. These are all signs that don't suggest a positive future for me. The problem for Germany is that they haven't really still got a successor in place. I, I would, it's difficult, you know, Who, who's it going to be? It doesn't really, you, Germany have to get away from the fact that the next head coach, you have to start again. Yeah. So this isn't about the name or the prestige of the appointment. It's about making sure the appointment is the right one for that group of players. Because Germany are in the luxurious position of having another generation coming through now on the on the heels of the previous one. Not many national teams can boast that, right? Mesut Ozil retires, you get Kai Havertz. Pretty fortunate position to be in, let's be honest, right? So, yeah, so trade places with yeah, Germany. Yeah. Exactly. So but Germany have to have to make the most of it. And yeah. it would be a great shame to see that go to waste. Let's talk about the future. Um when you were at the ITK in Bochum, uh you uh, heard someone called Professor Matthias Lockman speak. Uh, that was fascinating for me because um, he advocates a, a sort of a different form of um, training training drill um, in younger players. Mm. It's a uh, it's aimed. Uh, it's called uh, Fanino. Fanino. Fanino is Horst Wein's original idea. Okay, and so he's adapted it. I find it interesting because it's sort of it's aimed at perpetuating young people's interest in the game, correct, and ensuring that they remain as involved in po- as possible, that they have as many touches of the ball as possible, that there are no uh, sort of rigid positions and roles. Talk me about talk to me about that because um, I found it very interesting that sort of you you lay it out very well um, the kind of the the issues with the diminishing talent pool and mm. why that happens, why as players grow up, whether whether they end up becoming professionals or not why people drop away and why they why why they fall out not of love with football but they they think nah it's not for me like i don't i don't want to learn to be a center half and nothing else mm. this is uh yeah it's, it's a really interesting well that's part of the concept. problem isn't it because if you're eight years old or you're 10 years old who wants to learn to be a center half at that age right everybody wants to score goals i mean no well, one grows up wanting to be gary neville no jamie carrig wants right to, yeah, exactly right, yeah. everybody wants to be thierry Henry, yeah. which is fine yeah. right but then create a situation for young people where the predominant focus is on fun. Yeah. And that's what I was so excited about. Or involvement. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it's, well, I mean, fun by fun, I mean, so, yeah, exactly. everybody being involved. Exactly right? that. And if it's fun for everybody, then, you know, that's, that's the most important thing. The basis of the idea, and this was so fascinated speaking to Matthias about this, both at the conference, um, I actually heard him speak in Dresden, yeah. It was, I'm sorry. It was the, no, no, it was because I was at two. So, okay. And uh, I heard him speak and it was great because everyone in the room at the time was just, you could see all the coaches were getting a bit, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're in lectures. It's Friday at four. I can't wait. Yeah. It's like being at school. Yeah, like it's, exactly. And he yeah. comes on and suddenly starts saying quite controversial things because ultimately he's challenging the system. And we, I think we need more people like that who have those ideas. And the basis of the game is three on three. Uh, the pitch size, I think you can fit eight of them across an, a full-size pitch. And you've got two goals that you're attacking and two goals you're defending. So there's, only, there's four goals in play. And there are many variations of the game, but this is the one I like the most, or the, the sort of the foundation focus. Three on three, four goals. And you can only score in, in the sort of the last quarter of the pitch. So you can't score in the middle. Every time you score, someone comes on. So there's a sub waiting to come on, so involvement. And the ball, there are three balls on the side. So you instantly go back to the ball and then bring it back into play. So you're not throwing it in, you're not passing it in, you're you're dribbling it in, choosing what to do, right? The brilliance of this game is that you, everybody gets more touches. Yeah. And if you think about when, I certainly remember when I played youth football, if you play left back, how often do you see the ball? Seven on seven, even at under nine level, under 10, how often do you touch the ball? 
that's one of the reasons that kids quickly say what you just said. Oh, football's not for me. I spend most of my time at left back thinking about what else I'm going to do on the weekend, right? I mean, I, I, I was never a particularly good football player, but I did a lot of football training when I was younger and I was a goalkeeper, which meant that invariably um, when we did it at school, I, I would just stand on one end of the pitch whilst a game went on around me. Mm. So only when I got older and it became a bit more, right, we're going to do this every day and we're going to go on tours and that kind of stuff that you think, you actually get a guy that's training you properly. And it's not the nature of the training, although that's obviously important. It's the involvement. And goalkeeping is a specialist position. Now, as I of understand course. that. But the idea of kind of putting someone in a position where they are constantly involved, yes, but also they're constantly adapting. Like that's that, that rolling substitute dynamic is really interesting because it's like... Okay, so you have to adjust to a new set of traits and habits when somebody else enters the pitch. And exactly. because there are only three of you, it's really, really important. So yeah. teachers are kind of, that's really smart. And you instantly, you force people to problem solve in a one-on-one -on -one situation, which brings us back to Jaden Sancho and players like Leroy Sane, where you, where there's a, a at the moment, a lack of those types of players. Because yeah. you create a whole generation of players who have the ability and the confidence to say well I'll take that person on or yeah. I have to solve this now because it's a three on three situation or I might be here and now it's a one on two situation how do I get around it it's kind of what a little bit although in a very very clumsy way kind of what Mehmet Shell was talking about he's not really mm, he's being a little bit imprecise but it's kind of what he's trying to allude to I guess yeah I mean in a way I think he's not done it in the most no he, well, he's done it in a very antagonistic way that's always going to be shot down by neophyte people people yeah. who are thinking you know in a contemporary way and i think what's a shame is that he could have taken those frustrations to people and done it privately rather yeah. than publicly and yeah. maybe we would have had a little bit more resolution in terms of what's effective but the good thing is that a lot of the ideas that fanino and corporates have been taken now by the dfb as a result of the failings in russia and you know for all of the and taken taken and used how and where well they've implemented them on a local level okay so now uh, in a regional when i say local i mean regional in terms of each county in germany so you know that it's slowly but surely they're being put into this test phase where they want to incorporate it as an option because what you have at youth level is and it's the same in england i believe is that there's this obsession with tables so and i have spoken to people about this before but it's the it's the uh, professionalism or the professionalization, I should say, of academy products from the ages of under 12s onwards, right? There's nothing more upsetting to me than a picture of the under 12 Manchester City team in full tracksuit, right? Because these are still kids. So can we remove them from thinking that they are one step away from playing with Raheem Sterling? Because ultimately you have a responsibility not just to develop them as athletes, I say in loose terms, because they're still children in my eyes, but also as human beings. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from adopting uh, systems like Fernino, because you ultimately encourage teamwork or um, encourage more one-on-one -on -one skills. Yeah, that, 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 that sort of developing people is a, a really interesting thing. It's another thing from the Mertesacker autobiography, because he talks about, um, he talks about in this country, for instance, um, you know, the lack of emphasis on education um, and also sort of uh, from his own experience, he kind of, it's almost as if he never really expected to become a professional footballer. He was so aware of his limitations and his body shape and his fallibilities and all, all that kind of stuff that he, he sort of just cheerfully carried on and, and, and thought sort of, I think when he was at Hanover, he, he sort of said, oh, well, you know, I'm only here because my dad is head of, head of the academy and yeah. stuff. Um, and also actually like, obviously we met through Mike Calvin and some Mike, um, Mike's best work is really, I think, about um, the things that aren't discussed enough in this country about uh, duty of care and responsibility to people who don't make it. You know, people who don't, um, you know, sort of the, the, the two 2% the two that do, terrific. And you talked about the kind of getting people away from thinking they are one step away from being Raheem Sterling. Mm -hmm. I'd say it's also really important to get families away from thinking that their kid is one step away from being Raheem Sterling, which is... Well, that's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah. Because what looks more appealing to parents than a, than a spot for their child in the Manchester City Academy yeah. or a spot down the road with a guy who's got alternative approach to coaching that focuses on human beings... And none of his bibs matches and yeah. all of his cones are a bit funny. And he drives <laughs> a second-hand van, but, and he might sometimes be five minutes late, but, and yeah. there's only three other kids there. But yeah. his focus and his heart is in completely the right place. Yes. So, of course, as a parent, it's easier 
to fall uh, in love with the concept of something like Manchester City and you know, take a great photo and put it on Instagram and it looks great, you know? And Get some free kit, boots. Why not? Everybody wins, yeah. except the child doesn't in my eyes because that's not the message that we need to be sending young children. The message we need to be sending young children is this is great that you want to do this sport. The main thing is that you're happy and that you have fun doing it. That's why I think this is such a good idea. For you know, it's like a like it's a it's a more complex process um, and system than I've than I portrayed. You really do need to, to read Jonathan's book to to get a hold of it. But like the idea of involvement and football being about having the ball at your feet, playing with your friends, and enjoying it a little bit rather than this kind of pursuit of right. Well, there's my next big contract or my first big contract. Or well, know. I often think that there's so much pressure on. I mean, look at academy situations. If you take from under twelves to under nineteens, for example, what's that? Eighty, a hundred kids. Yeah. Right. How many of those kids are going to be pro? Two. No, no. Right. One maybe. And if they are, most cases they'll be in the second division. Right. So that entire pathway, you're probably looking at seventy or what, eighty, ninety kids, ninety-eight kids who are not making it. Are we looking after them? Are we doing enough on oh. that pathway to, to make sure that if they don't make it, that they are equipped to handle the, you know, adversity of life, the difficulties that come with it. And the fact that you're in an academy setting for so long means that you're not exposed to the world in a way that other people are. I mean, I think about when I was young, being in school and being around people my age and going to the park and, you know football games and the things you used to do as a young person, you were only really aware of yourself in the context of your own friendship group. If you're in an academy, the, often you're only ever aware of yourself in the context of your performance. Yeah. And if you have that for five years... That crowd has got to create huge problems. I mean, like, I, I hope football's working up to this because, I mean, a very famous case recently, um, Joel Darlington, who was a Man United youth player who, who suffered a succession of injuries and a career denied to him, very, very, very sadly, took his own life. I mean, and that's a very extreme case, but there are plenty of examples of mental illness creeping into lives because of this. I mean, we mentioned Mike Calvin's work. I mean, uh, you look up Kieran Bywater's story, for instance, that's a, that's a really good example of what football does to these people and, and kind of when it becomes possibly something it shouldn't, or when from a very early age, it's been allowed to be something that is more than it really is, which I think is something that needs to be cracked back against. Probably. And imagine the extension of that if they do make it. Yeah. And then they're on social media without having been helped through that process. Yeah. And then somebody writes in the comments, you just played a terrible game. Sure. Why don't you pass the ball more? And if you don't know how to deal with that criticism as a player, that's extremely impactful. And maybe you think, oh, maybe I do need to pass the ball more. And yet no one's helped that individual apply critical thinking to the situation to realize that this person has no right to make those comments. You don't need to listen to it. They're not your coach. No. They haven't gone on the path that you've gone on. You can assess your performance with the people that know how to assess your performance. And you can have a conversation about how you feel with the people who are going to help you realize who you are. But let's not listen to everybody on the internet because that's not healthy. So that's just... An, an even worse step. <laughs> it's a good motto for life. Let's not listen to all the people. I mean, no offense to anybody leaving comments, of course, on, on the uh, on 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 the channel. But you know, you know but that's my point. If you imagine that you've gone through the academy <laughs> system where someone has maybe too often, and I, and I, the few coaches I have met who do focus who focus their coaching on character development or individuals, I wish that more support was given to those people because those are the real heroes in my eyes. They're fighting against a system that just wants performance just wants tables, all of that. But imagine going through the academy system as a player, and in more cases than not, more often than not, just having the idea of your performance being your judgment, getting to the pros, and then an extension of that being through social media. I mean, it's, it's dangerous, and you know there needs to be more support out there. Okay, so we've run over time a little bit. We were going to talk about packing, um, which... I think just just read the chapter in Jonathan's book about that. Um, <laughs> Basically, we'll, don't think possession stats are anything good. Yeah, don't don't talk in in completion percentages. Exactly. I think that's the message there. But um, m most people will be aware of what it is. But um, it's very very interesting, and it's a kind of I'm not an analytics person, as people who um, listen regularly will will know. Uh, people shout at me for that sometimes, but mm. I do believe in in the principles behind backing quite strongly. Um, because my 
team currently doesn't respect them at all. <laughs> Just pass all around the box, side to side, forever and ever and ever. Um, Jonathan, what's next? Because uh, what's uh, what's kind of what's on your on your radar? The book's completed. It's taken a, a big chunk of your life. Mm. Um, what are you uh, What are you looking to do next? Well, ironically, doing the book and doing the research for the book has had a large impact on how I view sport generally. And yeah. we just sort of talked about it there, but I, I feel like there's a big void in sport at the moment for looking after human beings. And uh, one of the things I've been able to do over the last few months off the back of the book and as a result of doing the research for the book is, you know, expand my understanding on on that and look into ways in which that could exist because I just don't think in the current environment that it's fair, uh, let alone that it exists, to expect a head coach to perform all of these duties. It's one person. They're also in charge of a staff. That's an incredibly difficult job. Then they're also in charge of a group of players. Who's looking after the coach, first of all? Someone has to be looking after the welfare of that individual because we can't just ignore that. Yeah. Who's looking after the welfare of the staff? Same question because these are the people who are often in the limelight. Oh, well, we're not very good at set pieces. Well, that's his fault. Okay, what? Let's have a, let's have a fair assessment of that. Let's just not point fingers <laughs> here. So that's one issue for me. And then the extension of that is who's looking after the players. I think obviously, you know, you talked about it there. Um, mental health is very important. And I think one of the ways that we can do a better job in that is take a, a step or two backwards and look at why we end up here and look at the causes rather than the outcome. Yeah. And I think if we were going back to not just applying the band-aid, the band-aid, but stopping the cut in the first place, yeah. then I think we would be more effective. So I think there's a, there's a space for that. And I think it, you know, sports associations around the world need to address it because more often now than I can ever remember, people are lonely People are sad and people just have no one to talk to. And it's kind of turned into a different podcast, this, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, you it's know, true, I, though. It is true. Like, it, it's, it's. I can only speak from personal experiences, but, you know, some of the hardest times in my life, I've certainly benefited from having people around me or, or yeah. the adversity that I have had to go through in certain situations, however big or small it is in the context of the world, has been the making of me. And, having people to talk to or understanding those emotions, having the emotional intelligence to process what's going on, even if I didn't originally, but going back and reviewing it afterwards has been huge. Yeah. So I think if we help people, if we can create a way to help people so that when they are encountering these situations, when they're encountering adversity or they need to apply critical thinking or they don't know how, what they feel or why they feel it, that they're equipped with that knowledge then I, I do genuinely believe that we'll have people who feel far more comfortable in themselves. And for all the people that it's important, the knock-on effect of that is that they'll probably be better players. That's not really that important to me. What's healthier important to me... Healthier players, I'd say, is the right healthier way to players. describe it. Yeah, yeah but what's, that's not necessarily the most important thing to me. The most important thing to me is that they'll be healthier people. Yeah. And if that's right, then everything else will be. I mean, put it in basic terms, but you wouldn't build a house without building a foundation first. So why do we focus on all of the trims and the fittings and the features without addressing the person? Yeah. You know, a football player can't be a football player if they're not a person first. It's been fascinating. Uh, we don't have a rating system at TIFO. Um, we don't give out five gold TIFOs for books or anything like that. <laughs> but honestly, it's fascinating. I like to think of myself as someone that's fairly well educated in the game and um, has a fairly broad um perspective on it but i my knowledge of coaching um and the ingredients which go into it probably multiplied by a factor of about four or five just by reading the book uh thank you absolutely excellent um and to be honest with you just go on twitter and type it in. i haven't seen anyone say anything different about it it's um it's an amazing bit of work um and uh yeah it's it's been been such fun to have you on thanks for coming thank you
My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe.